From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Rabbi Jack Moline in Washington, filling in this week for your host, Reverend Welton Gaddies. We can't go off of our own standard. We have to go off the standard of what God has said. And God has said that that baby in the womb is a person, and to kill it is murder and is evil. And I think I would call um, and ask the nation to consider God's word, to consider the truth, to see this as it truly is as murder and deal with it, deal with it as such, uh, to turn away from this sin. Ask most Americans, and they'll likely say that religion condemns abortion, period. Based on the tireless media reports of anti-abortion activism in this country, you can't really blame them. But just because self-styled Christians purport to speak for all people of faith doesn't mean it's true. Tens of millions of Americans support reproductive choice with full support of their religious traditions. And that includes many Christians, no matter what the loudest voices relentlessly claim. One denomination feeling a threat to its religious freedom is the Unitarian Universalist Association. And we'll get the thoughts of the association's president, the Reverend Dr. Susan Frederick Gray. I'm a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. Former Vice President Mike Pence famously branded himself a born-again evangelical Catholic while still a presidential candidate in 2015. His propensity for catchy labels should remind us he spent some years as a right-wing radio host as well, making sure to distance himself from the most off-putting strains of the MAGA movement since the last election. The former Indiana governor has been busy building just the right networks in preparation for the next one. And we'll get insights from one of the country's top Pence watchers, author and journalist Tom Lobianco. Evangelical minister Scott Lively took his anti-gay message to Uganda. The gay movement is an evil institution. That's goal. The goal of the gay movement is to defeat the marriage-based society. His presentation, part of which was broadcast on Ugandan television, focused on what Lively called the gay movement and its agenda. Anti-LGBT hatred and violence have been promoted in the name of religion for over a decade in Uganda. Now a group of visual artists is spearheading a campaign for tolerance and inclusion, not in spite of, but because of religious principles. We'll get details from Vincent Jabayinze, director and founder of East African Visual Artists. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and change. There were social media rumors this week that Pope Francis was mulling retirement accompanied by photographs of the pontiff in a wheelchair. Now, a papal advisor within the Council of Cardinals has flatly denied the idea, blaming the rumors on the U.S. Catholic hierarchy where entrenched conservatives strongly oppose the pope. Cardinal Oscar Andre Rodriguez Maradiaga went so far as to call it all, quote, a cheap soap opera. And, of course, fake news. Good Faith Media reports that in a recent survey, a majority of Republican respondents agree that, quote, White people are being replaced by non-white people, and that, quote, discrimination against white people has become as big a problem as discrimination against black people. A majority. It was only months ago that writers like Jeff Charlotte were warning us that the racist replacement theory that inspired the chants at the Charlottesville Tiki Torch rally was gaining traction on the right. Now it seems to have not only gained traction, but dominance. 
And Religion News Service reports that conservative rabbis have paved the way for non-binary Jews to be included in Saturday morning services, where being called by name is an essential part of a ceremony to bless the Torah. A unanimous vote greeted the move toward greater inclusivity. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a heartfelt thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guest. The Rev. Dr. Susan Frederick Gray is president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, a religious denomination with over 150,000 members in this country and 800,000 worldwide. In a powerful column published in Religion Dispatches, she expands on the headline, Transphobic and Anti-Abortion Policies Are a Direct Threat to My Religious Freedom." And I am happy that it brings Reverend Susan Frederick Gray to State of Belief Radio. Welcome. Thank you, Rabbi Jack. I'm delighted to be here. You know, Reverend Susan, this is such an important topic. Conservatives continue to leverage religious credibility to advance an agenda that excludes the deeply held beliefs of millions of Jews, Muslims, mainline Protestants, atheists, and others, including Unitarian Universalists. Would you start with a description of where the UUA stands on the issues you focus on in your column, transgender identity and reproductive health care? Absolutely. So um, a recent study showed that 97 percent of Unitarian Universalists support equality for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and queer people. And over 90% support reproductive access for all people, including a right to abortion in most cases. And so these are commitments that we have held for generations. Um, one of the first uh, decisions we took nationally to support equality for lesbian and gay people was in 1970. So these are deeply wow. a part of who we are. And, you know, one of the things, Unitarian Universalists are not a creedal faith. We don't have a profession of faith that we all subscribe to, but we do have seven principles that we do affirm and work for in the world, and they guide our faith. And the first one is the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And that's at a foundation of our commitment to LGBTQ plus people, as well as a commitment to justice, equity, and compassion in human relationships and acceptance of one another in our spiritual growth. And so these are sort of, these are the principles that are the foundation for our support for LGBTQ equity and for women's equality, for gender equity, that informs our commitment to a woman's right to choose. Why do you think that the reality of just how diverse the teachings and beliefs on these topics truly are seems to be getting lost in public and media attention? So what a great question. And I would say that for decades now, conservatives have worked to redefine religious freedom and religious liberty as an effort to impose their religious beliefs on everyone, which violates human rights. So 
I, I want to talk a little bit about religious freedom. So religious freedom in our constitution is, is meant to provide protection for religious minorities. It is meant to establish protection for a religiously plural society. But right now, there has been an intentional effort among conservatives for decades to redefine religious liberty as protecting those who already have power, protecting and actually asserting the religious beliefs of those who already have power on our whole society. And that's fundamentally immoral. It's also unconstitutional. And it denies the fact that millions of Americans, millions of Americans support LGBTQ plus equality and support reproductive freedom. You know, it's important to to note through all of this that um, the understanding of the Constitution is not just what is being twisted and perverted by the religious right. It's the very essence of why the First Amendment was created, as you pointed out here. So if you can redefine not only what it says, but what it was meant to say, it helps to create this problem for us. I just want to be clear about how dangerous that is, because you're absolutely right that the First Amendment was to ensure that the government would not impose a particular set of religious beliefs on all people. But that is exactly what is happening when we see states like Texas and Alabama um, calling the support and love and health care and welcoming of trans kids child abuse, right? I mean, this is a particular religious belief. Um, which doesn't reflect my religious beliefs, being established by the government and, and creating a culture of fear for families, a culture of fear for churches and religious communities, and a culture of surveillance in our society. So I just it's important to recognize how dangerous this is and how far away we are from the original sense of religious freedom and the First Amendment being a protection among all people from the overreach of the government. That was very much a focus of your column that brought you to us today. Can you tell me how you believe that the policies that are built on one set of religious teachings trample the rights of everyone else? Yeah, absolutely. Let's just talk specifically about these anti-trans policies in Texas or the just horrifying anti-trans law in Alabama. So they violate the sanctity of the family by interfering with parents' ability to raise their children, to support their children in, in being all of who they are. They violate the religious sanctity of, of communities, of religious communities. They violate the sanctity of the relationship between a pastor and their people, right? Because I have been a pastor for almost 20 years. I was a local pastor. Now I'm a head of a denomination, the Unitarian Universalist Association. But as a local pastor, I saw the life-saving difference that it made to trans children and their families when they were able to come and be welcomed and loved and accepted fully for who they were. And Texas trying to insist that people report on families that have trans kids or are supporting their trans kids and getting the health care they need, that is a violation of the trust and the sanctity of a religious leader and their people, as well as the sanctity of that family and that religious community as a whole. 
there are some people who hold to what they would call traditional values, who would say that liberals like us are using the language of religious freedom to justify or validate what they would consider to be aberrant behavior. So how do you answer that kind of an accusation, especially when it has the weight of what has unfortunately been part of uh, societal standards for a long, long time? Absolutely. Well, let's recognize that, first of all, that societal standards that have been present for a long, long time don't always mean that they're just. But one of the things I would say is that in your religious community, we all should have the right to believe the things we believe, to practice the things we believe, to raise our kids in our religious community, communities to share our values and be affirmed in our faith. But when it comes to the public square, when it comes to the public square and what happens with housing and education and job access and right to health care, that cannot be dictated by any one religious community. There has to be equal protection under the law for all people when it comes to the, to the public square, right? So it's okay to have those beliefs and to teach them to your children and to make decisions about reproductive, um, what reproductive services you want or don't want based on your moral religious values. It is also okay for me to do the same, Right. And in the public square, we have to have free access to, to services, to health care, to human rights. So you focused on these, on these two particular issues in your column, but it's clear that there are other issues as well. And we shouldn't kid ourselves. There really is a slippery slope in front of us with our other rights and protections that are precious to minority faiths and other groups in the crosshairs. What other rights are you worried about if, if these uh, objections to rights for, for trans people and for abortion rights are successful in suppressing uh, members of our society? Absolutely. So as a Unitarian Universalist, I, you know, I believe in gender equity. I believe that um, everyone has inherent worth and dignity. I believe in anti-racism. I believe in religious pluralism. And I believe that trans kids and trans people are sacred and divine. So in just in saying that, let me name a few things that could be on the line and that others have said are on the line. I think the right to um, interracial marriage could be on the line. I think the right to uh, same-sex marriage is on the line. I think the right to contraception is on the line. I think a whole host of uh, equal protections of gender equality is on the line. Um, it is, as a woman, I say this as a woman, although it's, it doesn't just affect women, it affects all people and entire families. But I have a right to have agency over my body and what happens to it. And if that gets taken away, what other rights will be taken from me? That, to me, is a central uh, right of bodily autonomy, of freedom, of agency, of the right 
to decide to have children or not have children, to get the health care I need when I need it without the government interfering in my relationship with my doctor. So to take away that kind of agency over my own body, it just makes me think that in all kinds of ways, the agency that people have, their privacy um, could be taken away. I think the right to privacy is a huge piece of um, precedent in the court that has established a lot of rights for many minority groups and, and many people. And so it's very scary to consider that being taken away. Sure. You know, we've talked about this in sort of general terms, um, but there's also uh, a very personal aspect to this. A friend of mine commented recently, he's a rabbi, and said, uh, statistics don't walk into my office, people do. And uh, in your column, you describe how first-person experience with a family raising a transgender child deepened your understanding and your commitment. Would you talk about the importance of the impact of that kind of personal encounter? Oh, absolutely. I don't think we can ever know fully what another person experiences. As a pastor, it's really an incredible honor and gift to be able to share um, things about people's lives that they might not share with everyone. Um, and, and so, you know, to know, you know, in this personal experience to witness a family who just about everywhere they went, their trans daughter was not able to be who she understood herself to be. And to be able to come into our church and be welcomed and wear what she wanted to wear and be accepted for who she was and loved and seen like that value of being seen and cared for, we all know how important that is. And as Unitarian Universalists, we extend that love and care and belonging and acceptance to trans kids. And so I just, um, I mean, it, it's just, it's just deep in my heart, but it's not just that experience. I mean, it's so many trans people I know and those I don't know. I mean, these, these laws create a culture of fear. And we have seen every year over the last few an increase in the number of deaths and murders of uh, especially trans women of color. And so, you know, this, there are ramifications for, this, uh, for these kinds of laws. Like when, you know, there are ramifications in that they give people license um, to to hurt others, license to be inhumane. Um, and, and we see that in other places in our country. Like we just see a rise in racism and violent rhetoric um, and attacks on marginalized people. And that is dangerous. And we are seeing, you know, we are experiencing results of that danger. Hmm. You know, I think of, I think of the, the shooting in Buffalo, and I know this is a little bit afield from our conversation, but the anti the racism and the anti-Semitism um, by that shooter and what they were saying and the replacement theory, like those those ideas that are being perpetuated by the right have real life implications for people in our communities and our society, deadly implications. And so I want to see our leaders take more responsibility for their role in creating a peaceful and prosperous society rather than creating laws and rhetoric that divide and put people at risk. So do you think there are ways that lawmakers and others committed to these absolutist policies could be effectively encouraged to have some 
in-person types of experiences that might trump dogmatic rhetoric and policies. Uh, is, is there a way to expose people to the humanity of the issues that they're discussing? Not always, sometimes. And it breaks my heart that it isn't always. And I say that because, you know, I know a family, um, I've been connected to a family, I don't know them personally, um, but part of our community in Texas, where they have a trans kid, um, and they invited the, um, the attorney general who was expressing lots of anti-trans beliefs. So this was years, several years ago before this policy about child abuse invited him to dinner. I don't know if you, you know, this story was covered in major news outlets, but invited him to dinner so that he could meet their child so that he could have dinner with their family. And they, you know, they said they had a lovely dinner. They thought it went really well. And they did that. They invited him into their home in hopes that meeting their family, meeting their children, including their trans child, that that person's heart would be changed. And it didn't, right? The attorney general, now that family faces potential um, review by child services, right? They're in such a precarious situation. And so I wish that was all it took. Some of that is about our deeply held religious beliefs, right? That like they're deeply held and they're hard to change and, and that's okay. But again, it's not about your religious beliefs. It's about we all need to be treated fairly and equally in the public square. That was the point of religious freedom was to allow religious pluralism to, to, to be the um, context of our country so that we wouldn't fall into religious fights, right? We could just not agree, but in the public square, no person's religious beliefs would force others to do something or not be able to do something. And that is exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about reproductive freedom and we're talking about healthcare for trans kids, right? We're not talking about what you teach your kids. We're talking about whether or not you as a person with your own religious beliefs can get healthcare freely and excessively. And the government is interfering with that based on a particular set of religious beliefs. And that is unconstitutional. I worry it will not be deemed unconstitutional, but I am clear that it is. So, Reverend Susan, other than becoming part of the UUA community, what should every listener be doing to help protect religious freedom in this country? Oh, what a great question. Well, I think that we should all be not, don't allow religious freedom to be redefined. Claim it as a commitment to religious pluralism. Claim it as a commitment to keeping the government out of these personal religious moral decisions. Um, I want everyone to reclaim religious freedom. That's one thing. Number two, we got to vote. We have the midterms coming up. We have to make our voices heard. You know, we most of us vote if we're religious people, our moral foundations inform our vote. But get out there and have your voices heard. You know, in 2020, when we faced, um, as we still face, but a real threat to democracy and rising authoritarianism, we 
set up You, You, The Vote. We launched this program, You, You, The Vote. We had over 400 churches, over 4,000 volunteers participate, and we reached over 3 million voters, helping people know when they needed to vote and have access to the vote, over 3 million people. It matters to us that much that we fight for equal protection for all in the public square. And so if you're interested in that, go to uuthevote.org. You don't have to be a UU to participate, but we're going to be working in communities, talking to people about our values, about the issues like reproductive rights, about LGBT equity and equality. So um, go to uuthevote.org. You can find a group in your community and work on getting out the vote for your values. Wisdom and enthusiasm. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. The Reverend Dr. Susan Frederick Gray is president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. Her Religion Dispatches article is headlined, Transphobic and Anti-Abortion Policies Are a Direct Threat to My Religious Freedom. And we'll link to it on stateofbelief.com. Reverend Susan, thank you so much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Rabbi Jack, it was a great pleasure. Thank you. We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, author and journalist Tom Lobianco on what Mike Pence has been up to while out of the public eye. And later, religion has been hijacked by dangerous anti-gay bigots in Uganda, including in the government. Now a religious campaign for tolerance and inclusion is underway there. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. It seems to be an essential part of former Vice President Pence's persona, mild-mannered, unassuming, colorless. In a short attention span age like ours, there's no better way to stay under the radar than to be boring. But Mike Pence is far from boring. In fact, he's a cunning strategist who has positioned himself at the intersection of the most powerful strains of the zeitgeist. And always ready with another cup of coffee, Journalist Tom Lobianco has been keeping his eye on the self-proclaimed born-again evangelical Catholic when most others have looked away. And I'm so pleased to be able to welcome him back to State of Belief. Tom, thanks for being with us again. Thank you, Jack. Good to be here, man. It's uh, incredibly important right now, even for the most boring of politicians. Your beat uh, has covered a lot more GOP ground than just Mike Pence, but you're definitely the go-to guy on the former vice president. So what's he been up to lately? Uh, right now, he's basically running his uh, his pre-campaign for president, uh, a shadow campaign for president, you know, whatever kind of terminology you want to use. It looks like he's running and um, he's been going across the country. He's been hitting the early states. I mean, basically since like three months after January 6th itself, he was already on the trail, you know, South Carolina, New Hampshire, Iowa, um, not declared formally, but, you know, like with all things done with a wink and a nod, um, you know, nobody goes to New Hampshire to campaign for uh, state senators uh, unless they have uh, other designs. <laughs> it's quite a thing that that uh, the man that was literally being hunted in the hallways of the Capitol on January 6th. 2020 
didn't appear at the televised hearings. But Pence seems quite capable of defying expectations, even when those expectations came from President Trump. What's your comment on that? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I think you you hit at this in the intro, is kind of demure style of politicking, flat, even, boring, steady. Um, I mean, there's a method to that boring madness. It's, you know, it's, it's steady. It keeps them in the mix. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of say this with, with Pence in particular, but although it's really true of most politicians, um, is, you know, always watch the actions over the words, right? And especially for Pence, because Pence is so scripted. And he's, the run itself, this de facto run for president, looks to some people, and I, I think so too, looks like the revenge. You know, the act of actually doing it is an act of, is an act of defiance. You know, Trump is, if there's one person that Trump will not clear from the field, it's the one, it's the person he almost got killed on January 6th. Yeah. So paint a picture, if you would, of what you think the power structure is shaping up to be in 2024. Uh, who, who is Mike Pence building alliances with right now? Uh, very close. He's, kind of, you know, in some ways, um, he's kind of reverting, reverting to form, which is um, with the, the, the hard Christian right, um, Christian, the old moral majority, you know, the kind of that that style of um, hard right evangelical voters. Um, he's he's building in a lot with that. He's playing to uh, the pro-life, anti-abortion crowd. Um, you know, that draft opinion that came out in the Dobbs case. Um, that certainly gave him a, a boost in this, this this kind of pre-primary campaign that we're in right now. You know, the big question for him, I, I, ironically enough, you know, the, the universe, you know, this is what me and my book editor used to talk about, which is like, he is so boring himself, <laughs> but the circumstances around him are just bonkers. When was the last time a vice president was almost murdered at the U.S. Capitol? Right. Like, I mean, we've had some wild stuff in American history, uh, but nothing like that, at least in modern memory. And he just it just keeps on coming up around him. He he is constantly put in these positions. So, you know, I look at that with the abortion and, you know, ironically, where that is, is it pits him against Trump more than likely in 24. You know, if Trump runs, that probably makes a better case for Pence as a as a as a potential nominee with a, with a very slim path, we need to add that caveat in there, very slim chance of getting it, but still a chance versus if Trump does not run, then it becomes a free for all. And then, you know, it, it it goes to people like, you know, Ron DeSantis or Tim Scott or maybe a Mike Pompeo, maybe even Nikki Haley. Ted Cruz, probably not Marco Rubio. Um, the question, of course, is what is not only what does Trump do, and I think this is what we're seeing. You know, we're all looking for these data points right now in these Republican primaries, and you know, we look very closely at Ohio. And I think there's there's a couple of things to consider here. Number one is the hot takes that we all write immediately after each stupid primary are, are generally worthless. I'm sorry, they just are. You know, we tend to miss bigger things because we're, you know, we're padding around a, a, an elephant, pun intended. You know, tra- you know, one of us has the tail, another one has a, you know, has a has a paw, a hoof or whatever, you know, the 
And we're trying to make heads and tails of this thing. And you really need like four or five data points. And I think like now that we've seen in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, Nebraska, uh, the Georgia primary, would it, the shape of the party, and I've written about this for Yahoo, it, it, the shape of the party really looks like something that Trump more or less still controls, not nearly as much as he controlled it before, and it's slipping from him. And the question is, how fast does it slip away from him? Can he turn that tide? Um, you know, the, you watch the voters. The voters are not cons- the voters are not dialed in on January sixth and the big lie that Trump peddled in twenty twenty and after twenty twenty. They're dialed in on gas prices, on milk prices. This is where they're in. They're dialed in on guns. This is why the Democrats are going so big on on guns. I mean, among other things, you know, uh, you know the the tragedy of these mass shootings. There's there's also a kind of a real politic to it, which is that these are things that affect people directly in their lives. This is what we this is what we hear from pollsters, from political operatives. And it's not one of these high. It's I say high minded, but kind of high minded for the average average voter, you know, like January 6th, you know, things that, you know, bigger philosophical questions of, you know, what is American democracy and, you know, fundamental question of, you know, what happens if a coup is successful? in this country. I mean, astounding to even say that out loud. The thing that we hear a lot from the voters in particular in in these surveys is voter burnout on politics. You know, five years of the Trump show, the Trump reality TV. I mean, I'm sure there's some people that still tune into like season 37 of Survivor, but probably not as much as 20 years ago. And that's kind of where most voters are with politics right now. With all of this going on, do you think that Pence is making a wise choice to put the evangelical power structure above MAGA in his alliance building? Or or do you think that he'd never have a place at the MAGA table anyway? I'm not entirely sure how much that matters. I mean, it's his his stance on January 6th and, you know, him stepping in and basically telling Trump, no, I'm not going to throw the election for you. I'm not going to flip this for you. Um it doesn't seem to be a driving issue for Republican voters right now. And that and that's kind of the upshot of all this. I mean, we pay attention to it because we are in the mix. We are, you know, we know the gravity sure. of the situation. Um, but again, you know, gas prices, milk prices, his his team has been going out polling on energy issues. You know, they've been going out talking about and, you know, it's a very Koch brothers, Koch network, you know, dark money style of politic. And I don't know if that's dated at this point. Um, it could be. I mean, that that probably is the greater threat to Pence is, you know, is he is he over kind of in the same sense as Trump over, um, you know, can, can he be relevant? It's kind of the Dan Quayle question. You know, Quayle waited too long um, to run for president eight years after leaving office and nobody really paid attention to him anymore. Um, so I think. You know, yeah, I, I think that Pence has these Pence has some hurdles here, clearly, um, but it's it's not as like it's not as cut and dry as we kind of see it. You know, it, especially in the Washington press corps, you know, and, and you know, it, New York cable news, you know, punditocracy. Um, it's it, yeah. there's a lot more to it. So given that we've mostly been ignoring Mike Pence, as you said, What's the news from Pennsland in recent months that you think we ought to be paying a little attention to? Well, you know, um, he um, I, I've noticed him 
adopting more of some of the MAGA terminology. I saw him, I can't remember what op-ed, he writes these regular op-eds now, um, and forgive me for not reading every single one of them, um, I know I'm supposed to, they're, they tend to be, they're, they're fairly repetitive, let's just put it that way, <laughs> and I saw him use the word cabal in, a, in, a, in an op-ed. Pence is a very good weather van of where the American right is in any given moment. And I look at a lot of what Trump and Steve Bannon and kind of like that, that hardcore insurrection crowd is into, and you, and you listen to it, and a lot of it is just repackaging of old conservative policies, you know, these education battles, the culture wars, the anti-gay, anti-LGBT stuff. Um, Pence referred to a cabal of elites that are pushing this thing, ESG, it's like um, environmental social, uh, social justice governance. And it's really just a different branding on the same stuff he's been talking about for the last 20 years or so. And, but his adopting of that language is very fascinating. And I was talking with um, a couple of weeks ago with um, uh, Matthew Continetti, who's a, is, is kind of a modern historian of the uh, of the, the American right, and he had a really nice book that just came out um, on this. And he made a really solid point. He said that what you see now is not like a, a breaking apart of factions. You don't see like a resurgence of the old establishment within the Republican Party. You don't see a total dominance of like Trump himself, or this kind of this neo-Trumpism uh, that's out there. Instead, the way he views it, and I think that Pence is indicative of this, um, he sees it as the, the, the old establishment and the, the, the part of the Republican Party itself absorbing Trumpism, taking in the language, taking in the tactics. Um, Ron DeSantis is a great example of this. You know, voters love his combativeness. They also love the fact that he doesn't get up at three o'clock in the morning for God knows what and tweet about Kofefe. And, he, you yeah. know, like, so this is like, and this is where we get into that, like that concept of like a post-Trump era in American politics. What is that? It's, and again, everything is so fluid right now. Everyone's trying to, you know, everyone has their finger in the wind right now. And it's, and it's hard to tell. It's very chaotic. Is, is there anything Pence has done recently that has surprised you? Or does this seem to be a path that he has uh, intentionally and predictably blazed? Well, you know, at the beginning, I was surprised that he tried to basically walk past January 6th. And I think his first campaign stop since leaving the White House was a, it was an anti-abortion pro-life uh, a group in South Carolina. He didn't, he didn't talk about January 6th. He focused on other issues. He focused on the you know the policies and you know, the quote successes of the Trump Pence administration, um, and he has addressed January six a handful of times. He's made clear that he's broken with Trump on that. I mean, obviously, January six itself was the break, um, but he he's kind of doing what what some of the other Republicans, Mitch McConnell is another example, mm-hmm. which is just kind of walking past Trump without talking about him. And I mean, that seemed for that, for that group of Republicans, that seems to be a strategy that works. Um, you know, is it enough to deny Trump the nomination in 2024? I don't know. I'm probably not. But the flip side of that is, and you got to remember this too, 
Pence keeps on coming in second or third in the, in a lot of these very early 2024 polls that we see. And one reason why is because he keeps getting invited to fundraisers. He keeps getting invited to these, uh, to these, uh, these events, these political events. He has a stage and he has standing to do these things. Um, and, and again, back to the timing of this, why would Pence run potentially against Trump in 2024? The reason why is because he loses that relevance immediately after 2024. You know, I don't think there's anybody talking about Pence running for president in 2028 or, or right. 2032 for that matter. The other guys are young, you know, believe it or not, Ted Cruz is still young. It doesn't look that way with the beard, but you know, it's, um, it's yeah. young. <laughs> Imagine a battle for the Republican nomination for president. What happens between Pence and Trump during that campaign and what does the loser do? Oh, great question. Wow. Well, I mean, they won't be on the same ticket again. We know that. Right. Um, um, boy, I mean, you know, there's some people that say Pence is angling for something like a secretary of state in a future administration. Maybe um, doesn't seem like he would run for Senate or anything like that or run for governor again. You know, that'd be going backwards for him. Um, you know, it's hard to tell. I mean, the thing, though, is the the old traditions of pol of modern American post war American politics, you know, where a powerful party and a powerful party nominee is able to clear a field, you know, where we don't have battles that last all the way to each party's respective convention in the middle in the middle of summer, that's gone or it seems to be gone. You know, Trump can probably clear the field of like some younger folks, like a Tom Cotton, for instance, a Josh Hawley, people with future aspirations. But others, like Pence in particular, there's no reason for them to get out. There's nothing in there's no incentives left there for him to get out. And that's kind of the new the new dynamic here. Interesting. And and does Trump endorse candidate Pence? Does Pence endorse candidate Trump? I think the tweet on January 6th where he said, go get him. I think that's pretty much it. I think that's <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I, I'm sorry, I'm, I apologize. I, do, I shouldn't be so flip about that because, I mean, it really, you know, I'm thinking about this now. His life was in danger. A lot of people's lives were in danger. His family's lives were in danger there. I mean, I tried to, you know, when I was writing the book in particular, and I, and I try to, you know, pull back in the, my daily reporting when I can and be a little empathetic of where people are. And, um, his life was in danger. They came within feet. The, the the rioters came within feet of getting him. And it's that's that to me is still astounding. The whole thing is just absolutely stunning. Tom, my last question is what should we be looking at in the months ahead? Uh, what what are the what are the markers we should be looking for when we look at Mike Pence? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, number one is I'm curious about how these, how the January, what is the the fallout from the January 6th committee hearings uh, that, that will run through June? Um, you know, what are the findings that come out of that? How does that impact him? Uh, does it change voter opinions at all? It doesn't seem like that will, that will happen. Um, but again, you know, crazier things have happened over the last few years as, as evidenced. Um, it, you know, for him in particular, he's very steady. I'd be keeping an eye on, you know, again, the early state travel, New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, Nevada to a lesser degree. Um, does he does he see a need to get on board 
with uh, other kind of anti-Trump or right, you know, older traditional Republicans. Like a, I never thought Brian Kemp was a traditional Republican, but you know, anti-Trump, you know, whatever. However, you want to coin that. Um, mm-hmm. And does he feel the need to get back out there? And I, and my read on it is that he really doesn't. You know, he kind of like he pokes his head up periodically and makes a little bit of news. I mean, when he made the most news earlier this year was by with three words. He just said Trump was wrong. And that was enough to to drive things. So I think they have his team in particular has a very keen sense of this. You don't have to put him out there and overexpose him more than more than you need to right now. Well, Tom, we're we're really glad we were able to have you back. Tom Lobianco is a journalist and author of the definitive biography of former vice president titled Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. Tom's a politics reporter at Yahoo News and a contributor to Vanity Fair's The Hive. Tom, thanks so much for being with us again on State of Belief Radio. Thank you, Jack. Longtime listeners will remember the times we've covered the horrifying anti-LGBT initiatives in Uganda over the past decade. Flames of homophobia fed by Western dollars and fanned by conservative American evangelical dogma led the notorious Kill the Gays bills, as well as statements from political and religious leaders dehumanizing LGBT Ugandans and putting their lives in peril. Because religion is being used so brutally to drive this hateful agenda, it is particularly inspiring to see a new initiative in Uganda focusing on religion as the reason to stand with LGBT individuals instead of against them. And I'm pleased to be joined now by Vincent Jabayinze, director and founder of East African Visual Artists. Vincent, welcome to State of Belief. It's really my pleasure to be with you today. Let's start with your campaign hashtag, which is say no to religious homophobia. What's what's the premise of this campaign? What's the reason you chose that slogan? Um, now, the reason why we chose that slogan is that uh, people believe that LGBTI people, or if you identify as a LGBTI person, you don't have uh, belief, you don't have faith. And um, because of that, we said no. Religious leaders must stop discriminating and harmonizing people and denying them a right. Because you see, our constitution uh, under Chapter 4, Article 29, it grants us uh, freedom of religion, freedom of worship, freedom of expression. But um, because uh, religious leaders had got a tendency of uh, using religion, to one, draw crowds saying that, you know, LGBTIP persons are not welcome. Uh, LGBTI people don't, don't believe in God. We said uh, something must be done. And in order for us to draw attention and raise awareness that, look, we are all human beings. This is a right that is granted to us by the Constitution. We came up with a campaign of Say Not Religious Homophobia. Now, the name of your organization is East African Visual Artists. It's, a, it's an unusual group to take the lead on this. Why is EAVA uh, the head of this project? Yeah, uh, because you see, 
AFVA, we are a human rights media organization that uses visual arts to amplify voices of LGBTI person and most marginalized people so that their voices are heard. So what we do um, at EFV, we do documentation of LGBTI stories and other marginalized groups. We produce documentaries. Uh, we organize events. The reason as why we did that is that um, we looked at our country to see how do we reach uh, a wider audience. Because initially, many organizations think uh, when you're doing advocacy, you have to do things in the boardroom, organize workshops. But we noticed that uh, because people are already biased with you, they will not read the brochures you're going to give them. They will not uh, look into the magazines you're going to give them. And also the people you invite in a room, these are people within your circle. Then we said, in order for the population to understand that we are here, we exist, let us be innovative. We started producing documentaries, upload them on YouTube, go do public launches, and then the message gets out there because we believe that even if uh, someone listens and appreciates, ah, it, it has a nice picture, it has a good voice, we believe that the message is going out there. But uh, I, if you give me a magazine, I might take it and then I don't read it. But the moment I take time in my office or uh, waiting for a bus or a taxi on my phone and I start watching this video, we believe the information gets out there. So um, the reason that's why we, talk, we took on this as EVA, we noticed that the public needs this information. How do they get this information? Through arts is one of the universal languages. We might not be able to speak the same language, but with visual imagery, the connection is intimate to you. The interpretation is basically you as you watch the film, you interpret it the way you, uh, you feel that, okay, this is what the producer was looking at. Interesting. Well, clearly something's working because in March, you had faith leaders and activists sign a declaration. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, the first thing we did was, um, because you know, uh, religious work is not fancy. It's not. Uh, it's not like you're going to come and do a public launch. So what we did was to first identify uh, religious leaders and tell them that look, we have to commit to this cause if we are to end uh, religious homophobia. If uh, we are to preach the word of God, so uh, we had to gather um, faith leaders from different denominations. And uh, actually, before that, we produced a documentary called uh, A Voice Within. It's on YouTube. I'll share with you the link. It's called A Voice Within. Here we are talking with uh, interviewing religious leaders to tell us, um, one, what does really uh, the Bible all for them who interpret the messages of God? What does it mean for someone to be LGBTI and still have faith? Why don't they welcome LGBT people into their places of worship? So I produced this documentary. After producing the documentary, we invited them to send a declaration in March of uh, ending religious homophobia for them to commit. So among these religious leaders, we have um, religious leaders from the mainstream churches uh, who could say uh, who, who identify as heterosexuals, but they are preaching the word of God. And also we have uh, queer identifying faith leaders. So we brought them together to send a declaration so that, one, we know that there is a group of faith leaders 
who are ready to take on the job. And also that these religious leaders, one, they will speak to their congregation because the most important thing is not to bring them in a workshop to sign a document. The most important thing is for them to go out there and preach this word as we've agreed in, in this boardroom. So that's why we brought them together, watch the movie, send a declaration, and then spread the message out uh, there to the public. And have you found that they're following through? Are they speaking to their congregations about uh, what they've learned? Yeah, yeah. Realistically, we also we've been amazed by the work they are doing because uh, what we are doing, we are documenting their progress. Um, we have individuals who attend some of these services uh, on Sundays and other days to see really uh, how they are putting the message out there. And also because now they are acting like um, a reference, there are individuals who need counseling just to speak to a faith leader. So we've mm-hmm. given them connections to these faith leaders because you, you notice that um, Uganda, when you look at Uganda, almost 39% of the population, they are Christians, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, when you're born, at least you, you, uh, most of the people, you, sub, you subscribe to a certain religion. So now you, you grow up into this setting. So now when you grow up into your adulthood or into your teenage, uh, sometimes you don't, you don't want to let go. You still want to go back to talk to that priest. You want to go back to talk to that reverend. So what we've done is that um, the affirming faith leaders in Catholic churches, in, 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 the, in the Muslim sects, in the Pentecostal churches, we've linked them with the LGBTI persons who uh, go to them for counseling, personal counseling, talk to them, like, like the way it is done anywhere. So, and, and, and uh, the response has been great. They have not been turned away. They have been welcomed. And at least we can say um, there, is, there is progress, really. There is progress. What is, the, uh, what is the legal situation for LGBTQI plus people in, in Uganda today, Vincent? Mm. Um, see, First and foremost, still uh, being queer is still criminalized in the country under the penal code, given the fact that uh, the anti-homosexuality bill was struck down, but the penal code still criminalized um, same-sex acts and identifying as queer. But um, there are some strides that are being made um, that um, when you look at... <clears throat> how people now are accessing services. That's why even also we say, no, the time is now. When you look at uh, the efforts that have been put into um, people accessing health services, now people can walk into any health facility uh, and then identify themselves and then they are given services. But uh, your question takes us to um, something that when you look at the three most fuelers of homophobia and hatred. You see, uh, you have culture, you have religion. But now when you ask yourself, um, the, the effort that has been put into uh, these three, and politics, of course, you find that the effort is not very much. So the situation is still the people are being criminalized, but because of the efforts that are being done behind, 
at least I can say that um, people can access services, people can do some work. That's why you see we are able to do the work we are doing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's why you see people organizing pride. But the situation is not as we would want it to be, but it's bearable for now. Homophobia is imported. And homophobia comes with the dollars from Europe, from the US, name them, even from Asia now. What do I mean? Um, these people fund these massive crusades, you know. They send um, interns, they send uh, penny poles, they send sponsors. So they move around villages where people are really desperate, even here in the central business. And then they start telling them that, you see, for us, um, come to us. God loves you. God doesn't love uh, these kind of people. No, God doesn't love LGBTI people. You should send them away. And um, preach this. We'll take your kids to school. Don't, take, don't, don't, don't allow your kids to go to mixed schools because they will learn these acts. And because there is a lot of money coming from Europe supporting these initiatives, that's why you see that um, initiatives that are trying to curb homophobia um, they struggle a lot because uh, I will tell you, uh, they will fund um, a crusade, let's say, in an area. And then after the crusade, they will get like 20 kids and say, we are going to pay for your school fees. The kids will never understand that actually we are all human beings. For them, what they know that my life depends on God and the person supporting me said LGBTI people are the devil, they are, the, they are evil. So that's how it all works, that even if, even in our culture, we all know and we, be, we know for a fact that LGBTI people have existed, you know, and it's a written fact. But religious, when religion came in here, it came with its good and its bad. And the challenge is that now the bad is being amplified, the hatred, eh? the hatred is being amplified because of the funding. And that's something very huge. And that takes me to why I question uh, the efforts of the UN, that uh, if you institute like the, the World Interfaith Harmony Week, hmm? For, for religions to come to come together and, 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 and have harmony and dialogue and create a mutual understanding. How inclusive are those dialogues? You know, how inclusive are they? Or is it just a week for, for, for people with colors to come sit around and then put doctors? Sure. Yeah, so that's it. Sure. Vincent, you know, our listeners are here in the United States primarily, and you are in Uganda. How can our listeners support your campaign? And are there ways they can pressure the source of so much of this bigotry that comes from back here in the United States? Yes. One, what um, the viewers of the interface can do to us, there are um, a number of things. Um, one, they should share the campaign. They should share the campaign so that people can know the campaign is happening, that uh, YADPA are standing up against homophobia. But again, they should also question 
the government and those churches, where is our money going? What activities are our dollars funding? If you're saying you're funding a church, what is the value of those churches you're supporting? You know, because you know, the, the, the challenge is that um, we can't say stop supporting. No, we can't say that. But what we want is you question the support. Is the support inclusive? You know, because if you're funding a crusade that is going to say, ah, you know, uh, LGBT people not welcome. God even doesn't love those people. Kill those people. Then that is very dangerous. The other thing is that from them questioning and sharing the campaign, those who have the opportunity to travel to Uganda, they could come and take part in these activities. You know, because one of the biggest challenge we have is that, like I told you, is that um, people who support homophobia, they get their feet on the ground. Mm? Now, people who are fighting against homophobia, um, we would love also them to come and really understand the environment around and see how best we can push for this fight. Because if I sit here, and then I just tell you that uh, you see these people support these masculine sheds. You will have a picture. But if you come and then there is a crusade, we drive and stand in the crowd and you see what I'm talking about. You know, the impact is different. That means that even when you go to engage with, with um, different people, that because you've seen and you know what it means, the engagement would be different. So for me, I would call upon the viewers who have the opportunity, they can come around Uganda. It's a safe country that at least we can at least guarantee. We can come and see the environment, how the environment is, how best can we work together. And also um, to see how these initiatives are born and then they grow into, uh, into the activities that like you called me here today to say, how oh, do you do this campaign? For me, that is very important. Um, and also those who can um, as well chip in, for example, to promote some posts on, on Twitter or on Facebook or even to promote our website, the campaign. As in, those are things that we can really, really ask for from the viewers. Vincent Jabayinze is a documentary filmmaker telling stories that amplify the voices of LGBTI persons in East Africa. He is the director and founder of East African Visual Artists, which is leading with the hashtag Say No to Religious Homophobia. Their campaign has that hashtag. The website is EA Visual Arts, all one word, eavisualarts.org. Vincent, thank you so much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much for hosting me. I'm looking forward to continue engaging with you. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. 
State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, go team. I'm Jack Moline. That's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.